Good morning, church. Um, It is certainly good to be with you this morning in the house of the Lord. It is good to have the opportunity to sing together, to read God's word together, to hear his word taught and and preached. And so if you don't know me, my name is Greg Baker. I have the privilege of being one of the deacons here at Grace, and I also get to lead our middle school ministry that we call The Bridge. and also, I get to preach every once in a while, which is, which is a lot of fun and a huge blessing to get to dig into passages like these, to get to think about how they impact me and how they can impact our church, and then come and bring that to y'all. But this one seems a little bit different, and I think it's because I've never taught in the, in, in the, in the season of Advent. And, and while every Sunday is significant, every Sunday is weighty, I think we can all admit there is something a little special about this time of year. There is a, there is a sweetness, there is an extra layer. The, the colors, the songs that we sing, maybe it's just some nostalgia, the candles, it just, they're really, along with that specialness, that sweetness, I would say that there is a, a weightiness as well to this time of year. And so, as we dig into this idea of peace this morning, um, I would ask that you would pray with me to prepare our hearts to receive to receive a message from the Lord. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, and we ask for your presence to be impactful in this place today. We ask that your spirit would come, and it would do its great work in softening hearts. That as we look at these scriptures, as your word is spoken to us by your spirit, that we would be changed. We're thankful this morning for all the wonderful blessings that you have bestowed upon us in this church and the people that make this church up. But but first and foremost, um, we are thankful as we ever are for the accomplished work of your son Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection. I ask that during this time that the truth of your word would be made clear and that ultimately above all that we... Uh, that we would know and embrace and reflect your peace. We love you, Lord, and we praise you. Amen. Well, as I kind of alluded to earlier, we are going to continue in this series of Advent, um, talking through these four themes, today's being peace. Um, And we're doing that by walking through individual scriptures from the book of Isaiah. And today we're going to be in a very famous passage about peace in Isaiah 9 where it talks about the Prince of Peace. And so I'd ask that you would read with me starting in verse 1. It says, Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan and to the Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child will be born for us, 
A son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast, and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Well, before we, we dig far into that, I do want to start with a little bit of a, a question to y'all, and that is, what is peace? Certainly a common word. We use it all the time. But I think if you were to really try and parse that out, if you were to start to write down what is peace, it'd be a little bit odd. Because it is super common, but it's also super complex, right? It can be very narrow. I can talk about peace between my two-year-old and my four-year-old, or the lack thereof most of the time, right? I can also talk about peace, a, a peace treaty being the end of a war between huge nations, a world war ending with peace, right? I can talk about internal peace, peace within my own decisions when I'm faced with trials that I deal with them in a peaceful way, that I'm not anxious, that I'm not worried. I can also talk about external peace, like in those last two examples, peace with another person, peace between two groups, peace between two nations. There's these multiple lines, multiple ways that we can carve out different aspects, different ideas of peace. You know, in the Bible, there's kind of really just two words for peace. It's not one where, you know, there's 17 different ways. It's basically just two. One in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament. Pretty simple. And the Old Testament word is shalom, which is a word that I think is pretty common. It comes up a lot this type of year. And it goes way deeper than the categories that we just talked about. It goes way deeper than just um, simply a lack of conflict. At its root, shalom simply means complete. But what's cool about this word, and you can see it as it's used all over, especially in the New Testament, that the, con- or the, the connotations of shalom, the meaning of shalom, grow in complexity as the object to which it's applied grows. So with the very simple base layer, we could talk about the shalom of a rock or a stone. And all it would mean is that it's not broken. It's a whole rock. But then you could talk about the shalom of a brick wall or a stone wall. And it wouldn't just mean that it's complete. It wouldn't just mean that it's not missing any stones. It would also mean that it's performing its intended purpose, purpose that it was designed well, it, was, it has shalom. You could go a step further, we see an example where Job talks about the shalom of his estate, of his tents. But it's that he's gone out, he has counted all of his cattle, he's counted all of his possessions, he's taken account of all of his people that live with him and are a part of his, there is a sense of shalom of everything being in its proper place, of everything being working as it, is, as it was intended. 
going back to this idea of peace or shalom coming at the end of a, of a conflict, it wouldn't be enough for two nations to just stop fighting for them to have shalom with one another. It's more than that. It's more. It's, it's, it would be a sense of collaboration. It would be a sense of reciprocity, of understanding, working together, collaborating, cooperating, much more than just a lack of conflict. Right? And then we could go super extreme. Right? We could go outside of just our world. We could talk about a sense of shalom being brought by the Prince of Peace here in Isaiah 9. A sense of shalom that brings us back into right relationship with the God of the universe. That brings us back to a place where we are in right relationship. Where we do not have conflict. Where we are not at enmity with God. And that growing complexity, I think, is, is really a beautiful thing. But there is one more distinction, one more dividing line I think we can make um, for peace. One more way that we can kind of look at different aspects of it. And that is along the line of subjective or experiential peace. Peace that we feel, experience, that we know. But also objective peace. Um, John Piper is the the kind of person that I heard first make this distinction, and I found it really helpful because because we can see both of these things in our lives. We can see both of these things clearly painted painted in the Scriptures. On the subjective or experiential side, right, we have Scriptures like Philippians 4. that talk about facing hardships of this world with a peace that passes all understanding. We can experience a peace that allows us to absorb hardship without straying into hopelessness, depression, and doubt. Romans 12 calls us to do whatever we can to be at peace with the people around us. We can experience peaceful relationships that help us to grow, that grow us, that cause us to bear fruit. Galatians 5 even names peace as one of the fruit of the Spirit, something that will be shown by those um, who love the Lord and have been endowed by the Holy Spirit. You might think about these as like horizontal peace, peace here on earth within ourselves and with those around us. It's, It's peace that we're called to pursue, that we're called to live out on a daily basis. But then there's this objective side of peace. Just, is there conflict? Is there something wrong? Is there separation? It's not about what you feel. It's not about what it seems like. It's not about your perception. It's objective. It either is or isn't. There is a gap or there's not. Things are far away or they're close. Things, the brick wall is standing or it's falling. And that's where I think Isaiah chapter 9 is really helpful. And as we dig back in, and we kind of step through it verse by verse, I, I do want to point out that, <laughs> that, that God's people are in anything but a state of peace right now. Just in the chapter before, in Isaiah chapter 8, we learn that Judah's about to be invaded by these kind of ever more brutal Assyrians that Chad has talked to us about several times recently. And, and God's people are going to be presented with this kind of choice where they can look to heaven and they can look to the Lord of armies and they can take refuge in him. But they don't. Instead, they look upward and they curse their king. 
They turn inward to themselves. They turn inward, inward trusting on their own righteousness. And then we pick up in, in chapter 9 and verse 1. It says, Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future he will bring honor to the way, by, to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to the Galilee of the nations. So even after these people in chapter 8 literally ask Isaiah to start practicing black magic and necromancy, looking for a way out of this. Even after they look at the sky and they curse God, there's still this thread of hope, right? There's still this promise that God is going to preserve his people. Continue with me in verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You, God, have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time. And as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders. The staff of their oppressor just as you did on the day of Midian. So, so if you're like me and you read this next passage and you're like, hey, I thought bad stuff was coming. Hey, I thought, Isaiah, didn't you just say that the Assyrians are going to invade us? Why are you talking about that we are, or that we have seen this great light that, that, you, that God's already enlarged our nation? And, and the issue there is that Maybe you're like me and you didn't understand what prophetic perfect tense is. <laughs> Which basically just means he's talking as if he's in the future, right? That Isaiah gets this message from the Lord and he doesn't just say God will do this. He puts himself in that future state and then speaks in the perfect tense about things that are happening and continue to happen. You see, the people have light yet. They are work, walking in darkness. The people are not rejoicing. They're suffering. God hasn't enlarged their nation. Their nation is being invaded. They haven't been liberated. They're being enslaved. But the promise is there. Yahweh has not forgotten them. Yahweh will fight for them. I love this connection in verse 4 where it talks about... Um, Gideon from Judges. And I think part of the reason I like it so much is because it's important, but part of the reason I like it so much is because it must have been like four or five years ago, but Josh Dawes, who you heard from a few weeks ago, was doing this series with our student ministry about Judges. And I didn't get to go to every one, but I got to go to this one. And he was super pumped to tell this story. He loves this story. And it still comes up all the time about this Gideon, this mighty warrior, this valiant warrior, and he's up against the oppression of the Midianites, and he assembles this big army. It's like 30,000 plus guys, and God's just like, nope, too many. Send them home. Okay, he sends like 10, 12,000 troops home. God's like, nope, too many. Send them home. And he does it over and over and over again until it's Gideon and 300 dudes against all of the Midianites. And God does that because he doesn't want to leave a shadow of a doubt that he is the great warrior, that he is the conquering hero, 
that he is the one who won the battle. It wasn't you, Gideon. It wasn't your army. It was me. Isaiah wants us to understand that. Isaiah is making this connection because he wants us to understand that peace is not free. That peace is won by a conquering hero. Peace is won through conflict. I mean, listen to verse 5. For every trampling boot of battle and bloodied garment of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. Isaiah is painting a picture of victory in this holy war where the spoils are burned in dedication to God. He's using violent, militant language to describe this because he's drawing our attention to the fact that peace for God's people will not be free. Shalom comes at a cost. The peace is won and earned through conflict. It's won by a conquering hero, by the conquering hero of verse 6. A child that will be born for us. A son that will be given to us. And the government will be put on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The conquering hero. The wonderful counselor of great wisdom. The eternal father, our provider and protector. Mighty God, powerful, divine Messiah. The prince of peace. The bringer of shalom. The reconciler. The right relationship maker. And verse 7, the dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. The Lord of armies will accomplish this. And it's easy to kind of put your people or put yourself in the in the people of Isaiah's time and see how maybe they could have got this wrong. That maybe they thought that this meant that one day the Assyrians would be wiped out, that they'd be gone. That one day they would be free. Their kingdom would be the greatest kingdom in all the world. That they would be free to live without the oppression that has frankly plagued them over and over and over. It's the same mistake the disciples make. No more Rome. No more oppression. There will be peace. The problem is that the disciples in the time of the Gospels and probably the people here that are with Isaiah are are only thinking about horizontal peace. They're thinking about peace with the people around them. They're thinking about peace for their kingdom. They're thinking about peace within themselves. But Jesus Christ is not just the prince of horizontal peace. Church, we know that the the accomplished work of Jesus Christ is about peace with God. An objective peace with God. Where there is clear separation. Where we are enemies of God. And the only way for us to be brought near is by the blood 
of Jesus Christ. Jesus came into this world. He lived the perfect life that we never could. He died on the cross that we deserved. He was raised three days later to conquer sin and death, to destroy and establish dominion over sin and death. Not over Assyria, not over Rome, not over whatever else. Over sin and death. Because that's what it took to bring back Shalom between God the Father and His people. Because that's what it took to have true, meaningful peace with God. Now church, I want to get really practical about peace in your life, right? About experiential peace. Don't hear me say that that's not important. It's super important. It's all over the New Testament. And we're going to talk about it. But I do think we need to sit right here for just a minute because we cannot miss that we will never experience the peace of God until we are at peace with God. We cannot miss that our only chance to reflect who Jesus is as the great peacemaker, as the Prince of Peace, our only chance to combat the turmoil of life with a peace that passes all understanding is to first understand and first have peace with God. I love the way that Paul says this in Ephesians about this conflict between Jews and Gentiles in the church. He says to them, at one time you were without Christ. At one time you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel. You were foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope, and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He is our peace. He is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. You never get to this unity. You never get to tearing down walls of division. You never get to purge your life of hostility with others without first being brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. That is the foundation. That must come first. So, most of you all probably know this about me. Um, I, like probably half the people in this room and almost everybody who lives in Lake Jackson, I work in a chemical plant. And chemical plants, we talk about safety a lot. Like, a lot. Um, and one of the things that's always coming up in safety meetings and safety walkthroughs and safety investigations is complacency. Is this idea that as we do the same thing over and over and over again, we become comfortable with that task. That we stop giving it maybe the attention that it deserves. We stop thinking about it. We let our mind drift. We don't give it the proper amount of care and respect. And church, I'm afraid that we have become complacent about taking hold of peace in our lives. I'm worried that we have become complacent about this part of a Christian walk. And as I because as I read through these scriptures about peace in Ephesians and Philippians and Hebrews and Romans, that they're just very active. That there's often this militant language like we talked about. We're always doing something, pursuing something, going after something. 
Right? I mean, this past summer, we stood the Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers. Not the peacekeepers, not the conflict avoiders. The peacemakers. They will be the sons of God. They will be the ones in right relationship with Him. We see this about a, a pursuit of inner peace, about being free from anxiety. Look at Philippians 4 that I mentioned earlier. Don't worry about anything. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And then the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This wonderful, rich peace that guards our hearts, there's the military soldier kind of language. The peace that passes all understanding comes through prayer and petition. It's not from sitting around. We have to be a praying people. We have to petition. When is the last time you petitioned for anything? Persistently going back again and again and again. Knowing and trusting that no matter how many times you have to ask, that God is faithful to give you His peace. We forfeit our promised peace, church. We forfeit our promised peace because we don't pray. We have become complacent. We go through life every day and we have the same old problems. The same old anxieties and stresses that build up and up and up. The same old people that are super frustrating at work. You being a super frustrating person at work. Or maybe that's just me. But it doesn't have to be that way. John Bloom, one of the the staff writers at Desiring God, says it like, like this. God is promising us peace in everything. God is promising us peace in everything and freedom from controlling anxiety. Peace is ours for the taking. And the wonderful thing is that what God calls us to do is easy. His is an easy yoke and a light burden. He's simply calling us to pray. He's simply calling us to pray. The same sort of active pursuit is needed with, for, for peace with others. Listen to these passages in Hebrews and Romans, both in, both in chapter 12. Pursue peace with everyone and holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. And then in Romans, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not repay any evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath, because it is written, Vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Even in this passage where God is promising to be our avenger, our protector, we're still called to action. You, go good. You, go pursue peace with everyone Love your enemies. Care for them. Nurture them. Show them kindness. Feed them. Conflict for, uh, with others is unavoidable. It is going to happen. And it's our responsibility to destroy that conflict. 
to fight it, to conquer it. And that doesn't happen by just sitting back. It happens first by knowing our own place, our own security, in that we have peace with God and that we are sons and daughters of Jesus Christ, and then persistently pressing forward, being honest about our own faults, being introspective about our own sin and what that brings to the table, because I promise it's a lot. But then being gracious towards others, putting yourself in their shoes, trying to have that reciprocity. It's active. We have to pursue it. We have to keep going. Church, you will face struggles and turmoil. There, you are either in a hard part of life or a hard part of life is coming. And I hope that you'll face those things prayerfully. That you would beg God for His peace in those times. You're going to have enemies. You're going to be in conflict with others. And unfortunately, sometimes those others are going to be our brothers and sisters in Christ. Do not let that conflict stand. Conquer it by any means necessary. But I do think there's one more layer to this. I do think if we're going to be honest with ourselves and trying to be Christ-like in this area, if we are going to try to emulate him try to be Christ-like in being peacemakers, then we have to be sharing the gospel with others. Because kind of like we talked about earlier, what's the biggest lack of peace in the universe? Where is the biggest conflict? It's between sin and a holy God. If we're going to talk about peace on a massive scale in the world, that's the peace we need to be talking about. That's the peace we need to be making. God allows us, calls us to be on His great mission of conquering that conflict. To make those relationships whole and right again. Being on the mission of preaching the gospel. And in a world full of anxiety and devoid of forgiveness, a world where the status quo is to be bitter and unforgiving and hold grudges against anyone and everyone who's ever done anything wrong to you, just doing those other things can be a huge witness. Right? A huge witness. People have no idea what it's like to be forgiven. People have no idea what it's like for you to find out that you have a super sick family member and be okay. Our world knows nothing about that. But even though that's great, even though we should be doing all of that, it's still not enough. At the end of the day, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ has to be spoken in words. If we are really going to be on the mission of peacemaking, if we are going to be on the mission of Christ, we have to actually be telling people that there is no peace between them and the God of the universe. But there can be. Romans 10 and 14 says, How then can they call on Him they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about Him? And how can they hear without a preacher. We have to preach the gospel to the people around us. 
we have to preach the gospel to the people around us. So as we leave today, I would implore you to ask yourself some questions. Where are you being passive in your life? In what parts of your walk with the Lord have you become complacent? Are you battling anxiety and stress with prayer and petition? Because you should start today. Are you holding grudges? Are you letting conflict grow between you and your brothers and sisters in Christ around you? Or are you pursuing peace with all taking special care to look deep within your own heart, admitting your own sin, and having grace and love towards those around you. Because you can start today. And are you taking your place in Jesus' mission to bring peace between His people and the Lord? Loving them, forgiving them, asking them for forgiveness, but also preaching to them. Telling them out loud with words the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news that he died on the cross. That he bared the weight of our sin and he conquered it when he was raised from the dead. That we are far from God but that we can be made near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Start today. Take up rank in the host of the Lord of armies. Be a peacemaker in the service of the Prince of Peace. Dear Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you're the Prince of Peace, that you are the Lord of armies, that you are the conquering hero. We come to you as a people who complacent, that don't take that seriously enough, that don't take our own sin seriously enough, that don't take your mission seriously enough, that find it all too easy to sit back, to not pursue peace in our own lives, to not be ever in prayer, to not be petitioning you for your peace. We come to you as a people who are often bitter. We ask that you would wipe those things away. We ask that you would give us a strength and a boldness to actively pursue you in these areas of our lives every day. We ask that you would put on our hearts an urgency and a weightiness about the unbelievers in our lives. An urgency fueled by knowing just how good you are knowing just how good it is to live in shalom with you and wanting that for all the people around us. We do love you, Lord, and we praise you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.